Hi everyone, here we are with the second episode for um, the suite of questions submitted in the second part of the summer session by my students who are taking my abnormal psychology class. Had some great questions thus far. It's great to kind of get a little bit of information out there. I love hearing um, what students have to say uh, because I think the best way to really learn about uh, behavioral health issues um, and behavioral medicine is by asking these questions in a way where they won't feel judged um, for you know asking what they may think is a silly question so I've enjoyed these so far I've got the rest of the second submission here and then I've got a third submission coming up next week I think it closes uh, and so I'll have another chunk um, of questions answered uh, coming from my students. We've got a lot, we must have been going through the PTSD chapter right before or, or during this question period because I got a lot of PTSD questions. I really love it. Um, PTSD is probably not my area of expertise. I'm not as adept at working with and treating that as I am with the other anxiety disorders um, and especially with depression, which is probably my best area of expertise. But I know enough, just like any psychologist, to um, answer um, a lot of these questions to a good degree. So let's get started. Why is it that when some people go through something traumatic that has caused them pain in their past or childhood, it's hard for them to help someone else get through it when they see history repeat itself? Why do they judge rather than help? I hope my questions make sense. Hmm. Good question. Um, now, I wouldn't say that, you know, the, the way that this question is phrased, it sounds like everybody does that, and that's certainly not true. Um, lots of people um, who experience something negative in their childhood, a lot of compassion for people who are experiencing the same thing, and there's not that blame. But you do see that. You do see that blame. You do see, you know, people looking back and being like, you know, that thing happened to me, but you talk to, you hear about it to someone else like, oh, that's their fault. They shouldn't have done this. And you know, I can't, uh, uh, and they get judgmental um, about it. Um, so I think that if people stop to think about it, um, they probably wouldn't um, kind of endorse that, you know what I mean? Like if they think, of, if you prompted them to think about their own experience and compare that to someone else's, they would probably kind of start to see, well, whether they express it or not is a different story, but they would probably start to see the kind of, um, inconsistency in that but their reflexes to judge um, is what this question is getting at for some people their re reflexes to judge um, so for someone who may have experienced a sexual assault when they see you know someone else who experienced a sexual assault and and observes the way that they were dressed that night for example um, they might say well they shouldn't have dressed that way um, and you know I think that this comes from you know the prime factor in a lot of anxiety related issues is that um, people are avoiding thinking about it. They're avoiding um, dwelling on it. So, for example, if I experienced a traumatic event in my past um, and I see meet someone who's experienced the same thing and is really struggling with it, then if I am still struggling with it myself or if I just don't want to experience or think about it, the best way for me to not have to think about it is to be like, oh, they did this and that's why that happened. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not going to help them. That's preservative for me. Like that, that saves me from suffering because if I go to help them, not as a therapist, just as a regular person, if I go to help them through that, then I have to think about how I experienced it too. 
I have to relive it even more because uh, I might talk to them about it, you know, and so I might talk to them about it. I might try to tell them what I did that helped or, or something like that. So I think this comes from um, an unfortunate reflex of kind of going towards self-preservation as opposed to um, going to help someone. Now, it's not anyone's responsibility because they've experienced the traumatic event to help somebody else. It's not their responsibility. They don't have to. Um, and so I don't feel like that it should, it should be like required or something like that. But the question specifically states, you know, why do they judge rather than help? And it's, that to me sounds like they're being mean about it or saying, or saying like dismissive of that person's concerns. Um, and I think that's, you know, an unfortunate reflex where they're trying to preserve uh, their own feelings by kind of pushing that away. All right, next question. That's a good one. Do you think that behaviors such as OCD can be learned? Like if you're constantly shamed for having a dirty room, your parents tell you a dirty room lead to bugs, leads to bugs, then in adulthood, your room has to be spotless so you feel like there are bugs in your room. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, I would say that uh, if someone was really, really pressured us as kids um, about that, that we wouldn't necessarily develop OCD because we know that OCD is really rare. Um, it's like a less than 2% prevalence. Um, so it, less than 2% of the population will have OCD at any given time, maybe even less than 1%. I'm not quite sure. Um, but anyway, it's really rare. And so I think that that kind of experience is not uncommon. And if that led to OCD, we'd see much higher prevalence rates. Um, more than So I think someone would have to have a predisposition to have to keep the room spotless or they would be or being convinced that there's bugs in there. Um, but if it was OCD, then this person would probably think about bugs a lot and do lots and lots of different cleaning and different organizing and different uh, very, very intense things in order to um, prevent bugs. But for um, everyone else who, who, may or, who may not have kind of a vulnerability to developing OCD, I think we still have that feeling, right? It might be a little more like we are more concerned about keeping the room clean to prevent bugs than most people because of what we learned as a child because of this experience. So um, be, can behaviors such as OCD um, be, lear be learned? Absolutely, but they may not qualify for OCD. Now remember there there is obsessive compulsive personality disorder where we see people have a, uh, a very strong preference for orderliness and things like that. Um, you typically do not see um, the same kind of uh, kind of fantastical concerns where like if I don't organize my things in a certain way, then, you know, one of my family members will will get sick and die. You know, things that are clearly not related logically. It does make sense that if you don't keep your room clean, there may be bugs in it, especially down here in the south where we have cockroaches. You leave any food out or anything like that, you know, the hungry little beasts get inside. Um, and so they, the, there is a, like a, a real connection to it, even if the behavior may be kind of excessive and the concern may be a bit excessive. So yeah, uh, most behaviors are learned. I mean, there's, there's not much that isn't um, a learned behavior. We need some kind of exposure to reinforcement and punishment from the environment in order for behaviors to exist and continue to exist. So in this case, yes, they can be learned. Will they turn into a full-fledged obsessive compulsive disorder? Maybe, maybe not. It really depends on the extreme extremity of the training, of the learning, 
um, how extreme that is and how um, and if the person does have a predisposition to vulnerability. Next question. Do you think that the number of mental disorders has increased since the beginning of COVID-19? Are there resources available for people that may be experiencing these disorders? Uh, yes and yes. Um, I think I talked about this in a previous episode, so I won't get into it too much. The disruption in our normal routine that maintains our mental and physical health, um, I think, has made our mental and our physical health deteriorate. There was definitely a period of adjustment for everybody when we went into lockdown in various states. Um, and so the extent to which we thrive in this new situation, the extent to which we are able to make those adjustments and maintain, you know, the things that we need in life in terms of, you know, you know, physical needs, um, emotional needs, social needs, and those kind of things, um, determine how well we've done with that. Um, other resources, yes, uh, a lot of uh, therapists have had to go to online teletherapy. We've had to do that here at ECU. Uh, so uh, yeah, there are resources out there. Um, they might be a little difficult to find at first, but you know, look into those. One thing I will say that um, the text messaging therapies that are out there where people get treatment via text, and it, there's really no evidence base for that. Um, but teletherapies that involve like webcam therapy sessions and things like that, even if they're supplemented by text messaging, that's fine. But it's really those therapy sessions um, where people are learning skills that change the way they live that improve their mental health um, are the ones that are just as effective as the in-person ones. And there's a lot you can do via webcam that you can do in a, in a room as well. Um, pluses, there are pluses and minuses to it, but uh, in terms of efficacy, most research has demonstrated that things are that are effective in person are effective um, being telebehavioral health. Next question. I've heard of people feeling tingling sensations slash numbness in their hands and legs when stressed or in situations that cause panic. Is this an example of conversion disorder? Uh, no, not really. This is uh, an example of um, just the sympathetic nervous system response in those folks. Uh, conversion disorders, uh, quite different. This is more um, when people are experiencing uh, physiological symptoms that don't seem to have a cause. We know that the sympathetic nervous system can result in tingling and numbness in hands and legs. Uh, you know, and different people feel stress differently. Most of us, um, have an increase in breathing, our heart rate increases, our blood pressure you know, increases, we get flushed. That's most people. Some people also experience other, other sensations as well, just due to their own individual physiology. So some that sometimes that can be numbness and tingling um, and things like that. Shakiness, feeling almost like separated from your body at times even. Um, those are part of the sympathetic nervous system response, that fight, flight, or freeze response. Uh, and so, you know, this is an, definitely not an example of conversion disorder um, since it's uh, kind of connected with uh, stress and panic. Next question. There have been a lot of debates surrounding marijuana being addictive. Can marijuana be addictive to any extent? Uh, yeah, you know, within the DSM, there's nothing about addiction. The, the term addiction is not used within um, traditional psychology in a lot of ways. Um, people study substance use disorder, which is when substance use is to a degree that it interferes with life functioning. Um, and so um, other definitions of kind of addiction include um, there being tolerance and withdrawal. 
um, you do see, and the argument was that marijuana doesn't have withdrawal symptoms, um, and so it can't be addictive. And I think that's kind of pedantic and semantic and that sort of thing. Um, marijuana can be problematic. People can feel a drive to use it. They can spend a lot of time and money getting it. It can interfere with their normal life functioning. So it can't. There can be a substance use disorder um, related to marijuana, just like there can be a substance use disorder related to alcohol and and various other things. So I, I mean, it's it's hard for me to answer this question, frankly, um, because the term uh, addictive doesn't have the greatest definition. Um, even the definition of substance use disorders has changed pretty dramatically from the DSM-4 to the DSM-5, such that tolerance and withdrawal are no longer necessary to even get the diagnosis. It's basically, does the use of a substance and the behaviors surrounding that cause problems with a person's functioning? So yes, that can occur with marijuana. It doesn't mean it's guaranteed, just like with alcohol. Lots of people drink alcohol and don't have substance use disorder related alcohol. Lots of people use marijuana and don't have a substance use disorder related to it. It's about, does this use interfere with the person's life and health? Sorry, I can't give a straight answer for that, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> All right, a handful more questions to go. Obsessions and compulsions are very similar. I was wondering if you ever came across someone who only has an obsession or only a compulsion. I know they uh, lean on each other, uh, so someone just having one would be surprising. Um, I, it's hard for me to think, you know, and I can't, I can't really give examples from real patients. I kind of, you know, make stuff up as I, as I describe things because I can't give examples from real people I've seen. Um, one important point though, is if they only have obsessions or they only have compulsions, then, uh, it's not, uh, OCD because by definition they have to have both. Um, Remember, obsessions are basically thoughts. Compulsions are things that happen in response to that thought. And those could be other thoughts. Um, so for example, an obsession may be, um, uh, I'm going to say something stupid. I'm going to yell out and say something stupid. And if I count to 75 minus four, uh, count up to 75 and then back down by four um, in my head, then I won't say anything. So I'm doing it in my head, so it's a thought, right? but it's a compulsion because it responds to the obsession. Um, so yeah, some people are kind of um, really fixated on things and are obsessed with certain things, I guess, but may not have compulsions, but it's hard for, it's hard to really say. So, and outside of OCD, I wouldn't really label it as an obsession. So it's hard for me to think of, um, of examples for this because if it wasn't occurring within OCD, I probably wouldn't label it um, as an obsession. So I, I haven't really seen that. I'm sure that exists because when it comes to humans, if there's something that someone could do or could think or could believe, then they, there's someone out there that probably does. Um, so, you know, I'm sure it's, it's out there, but it's not something that you know, prominently comes to mind um, as I look at this question. It's a neat question. I've never had that one before. Next one. Do mental disorders skip generations? If a father has depression and anxiety, are you are you most likely going to get it, or will your kids get it instead of you? Well, you know, again, especially something with like depression, you know, these things are not super hereditary. They do kind of run in families and things like that, but the probability of you know your kids getting it if you have it, or your 
getting it. It's like it's a genetic disease and it's not. Um, the probability of your children also experiencing depression, if you experience depression, um, is I think it's like 30% at best. I mean, it's not very high. Um, so, uh, it, so this question doesn't really fit. Um, if you look at something like schizophrenia that has a very strong biological component to it, um, that doesn't, doesn't fit with the pattern that you're describing. It's the closer you are to the people who have the, um, whatever genetic vulnerability and environmental vulnerability that result in schizophrenia, the closer you are to that in relation, the more likely you are to um, have it. So I would say that uh, as generations go on, the probability lessens depending on um, who the partner is. So in this case, um, if your father has depression, anxiety, are you most likely going to get it or will your kids get it instead of you? So um, no one's going to get it because it's not something you catch, but um, the uh, situations that lead to it are probably both biological and psychological are more likely when one of the parents has depression than if only one of them does. So if the person asking this question marries someone who has never experienced depression, never will experience depression and doesn't have it in their family, then it's less likely that their kids will experience it as opposed to them experiencing it. So again, even with things that are very genetic um, or very heritable, like schizophrenia, uh, it's not, um, it's the closer you are to those genetics. So the close, the more closely related that you are. And again, it's not a sentence if you have relatives that have schizophrenia. Um, a lot of times people do not go on to develop schizophrenia because there are environmental triggers for it. Some of them may be related to what happens in the womb, um, but there are environmental triggers. And so if you don't experience those, then the probability goes down. Next one, I'm interested in becoming a clinical psychologist. However, I am not sure exactly what specific area I want to focus on. How did you decide? Um, like most human beings, if I reflect on what I did, I can probably tell you reasons and decisions I made, but the reality is um, I knew someone, I was a pre-veterinary medicine major because it didn't make sense to me to not have a major that didn't have a career in the name. And so veterinary medicine, very clear, I go and become a veterinarian. I don't understand how people major in something like English. There's no job associated with that. So that was my naivety going into college. Um, I liked biology, but there wasn't, I didn't get into research very much at the school I was in. There were probably opportunities there, but I just didn't jump in on them because there wasn't like an animal science uh, one there. Uh, so I decided that I needed to change the psychology and I don't think that was a very well-reasoned decision. You can ask my parents. They were not happy about it because they also thought that a major should have, you know, you go to school to get a better job. Um, and that major should have the job like name in it. And psychology was like, ah, I don't know, man, like what, what's the job? You want to be a psychologist? You want to just talk to sad people all day? That doesn't make sense. Um, that's not what I do. And my parents didn't understand that. And frankly, I didn't understand that at the time. I just knew I wanted to help people and I thought that that would do it. So I met a professor named uh, Dr. Linda Federoff, and she was interested in biological psychology, um, and she did uh, what's called cardiovascular reactivity research. And what she did was 
um, basically measured people's heart, blood pressure, etc., when they were under stress. And people who respond to stress physiologically differently have different risks for cardiovascular disease, and maybe there's something we can do about that. Um, and I found that fascinating. Coming from a, you know, I did two years as a biology major. I kept it on as my second major when I added the psychology major. So it also took me five years to graduate. That's why. Um, and so, you know, I loved both the these these this biology piece of psychology. Um, so I really stuck with that. I did some research with her. I got into grad school and worked with someone who's doing the same thing. Um, and so if you're doing biological psychology, a lot of times you're interested in health and health psychology. And I love the heart and what it's doing. And I wanted to do more research on, you know, cardiac effects of, of health. And that led me to obesity research. And I did a postdoc in obesity research. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I got into... I think I got accepted into two grad schools, you know, so I picked the one that looked the best and did the work that I could do there. Um, in undergrad, I met Dr. Linda Federoff, and that's why I focused on that. So, you know, if I reflected back, I could say that, you know, there's a lot of heart disease in my family, and I was always interested in that, and that led me and drew me in this direction, and that is true, but it was a lot of it was my environment. A lot of it was what I had access to and the experiences I just happened to have. Um, but I had passion for those experiences and I enjoyed them. And so that made me want to do that. And I think that's the way to, you know, choose what you want to do within clinical psychology or otherwise, the things that, you know, you're passionate about that are interesting to you that make you want to work more, uh, on them are the things that you should go for and focus on. If you sit back and decide, I'm going to be this because I want to be that because me sitting there in a room and being that thing feels good. That's not the best way. That's a piece of it, but you're gonna have to work for years and you're gonna have to work for long hours to get there. So you better enjoy the ride. And so if you have things that you're passionate about, find interesting and find rewarding, um, then that helps you to decide what area of your you know, chosen field you wanna dig deeper into. Cool question. Well, you got me to talk about myself, so of course I love the question. All right, this person submitted several questions. So this person has included some uh, personal information in their question, and I don't want to, you know, disclose that. So um, I kind of discourage people from doing this, but uh, there's some good things here, so I want to talk about some of the general um, topics. So um, this person said that uh, a few things that you know they went through a period of uh, depression for about four years. Um, and notice that they had some memory loss with that um, and that they also have concentration issues. And, you know, concentration issues are part of um, uh, uh, the, the symptoms of depression and of anxiety because our brain is just running in other, um, especially with anxiety, our brain is just running constantly. So there's a lot of interference and it's hard to take in information. And the extent to which we pay attention to incoming information is directly related to how well we remember it, how well our brain encodes it into memory. Um, so having poor memories of a period of time when experiencing severe depression, that's not uncommon. Um, and it's not um, something to be too worried or concerned about. Um, they also mentioned that they've tried different antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and they haven't really helped. That's just fine, you know, they're, they're not for everybody. And sometimes it takes a really good psychiatrist to figure out which one will work for you because there are different ones, there are different doses, there are different, you know, 
um, schedules and things like that. So sometimes it can take some time to, uh, to get that to work. Uh, so I'd, I encourage people to stick with that for a while, but if they give up on that, then definitely, and even if they're taking medication, they should try to see a therapist as well if they're experiencing severe issues. Um, but if the medication isn't working, especially, then they're just not getting treatment. And so it'd be very helpful to see a therapist for that. Um, they also describe some difficulty concentrating um, currently um, and mentioned that they have tried to get ADHD medications. And, you know, um, unfortunately, we ask you guys to pay attention a whole heck of a lot and the human ability to pay attention is limited. Um, and so it may feel like when you get into college, you're having a tough time paying attention. Um, and that's not necessarily ADHD. The way this person describes it is this is various situations, this is constant, they're currently having what they call memory problems um, and attention problems. You know, that sounds a little bit like ADHD and I would really strongly suggest that they try to find someone who will really take that concern seriously um, and really listen to them about that and see if they can um, get some medication for ADHD. Because medication is like really, I mean, there are a lot of uh, things that strategies people can use to help with ADHD and those can work on their own but medication is very commonly used and effective for ADHD and it sounds like this person is saying that the people they the physicians they've tried to talk with have not been um, very uh, receptive to their concerns um, so it's good to you know unfortunately not every clinician not every physician not every psychologist is a good match and sometimes we have to shop around a little bit to find the person that I'm not saying shop around for the person that gives you the right drugs, but shop around for the person that really listens to you and tries to find care that will be um, helpful to you. So again, like I don't want to go too much into what this person said because I don't want to, I mean, they know that these questions are anonymous. They know that I would, you know, was going to answer them in a public forum, but I don't want to get into specifics, but those are very important points that they make um, about memory and about like, um, finding and seeking help. Um, I really hate it that it takes, um, that it can be challenging to find a clinician that listens well, but you know, there's always, you know, for some clinicians that are perfect for somebody, for some clinicians, they're just not <laughs> perfect for someone. There's a clash or whatever. So trying different people in different places can be very helpful. Um, and getting someone that listens to you and, and takes your concerns uh, that you feel is taking your concerns seriously. I appreciate that person sharing that, even though I asked them not to get too personal. <laughs> Next question, how do you set up goals for patients that you see? Is there a particular method or theory that you prefer? Um, I prefer a behavioral approach. If you haven't caught on to that one yet, with all my behavior and context and health behavior change and all that kind of thing, um, uh, it doesn't mean that I ignore cognitive aspects of things. It's just that I, I prefer to encourage patients to make um, behavioral changes, so the changes to their lifestyle, to the things they do, as opposed to trying to change the way they think within session. I would rather them make plans and change the way that they behave and then talk to them in session about how did changing the way you behave change the way you think. Um, so for example, people who are experiencing depression who feel just worthless and hopeless and feel like they'll never amount to anything, if we can choose a few small things for them to do in a week that they can achieve, um, 
then they tend to feel better and they start to recognize now they start you know it's not like it fix it after a week it takes a few months um, they start to feel like you know what maybe I can accomplish a few things I accomplished these now these other things probably not and so whatever they say probably not are the things that I try to encourage them to work on next um, and so that's how I set up goals for patients I look at what problems they're having what has caused those problems and is keeping those problems around and then help them make changes that get rid of those reasons if that makes sense that's a very oversimplified way uh, to give a specific example so you know with depression especially you know you got to look at multiple areas of the life and have goals across those multiple areas in order to see change in depression but let me give you a specific example um, so let's say someone um, feels like they're uh, always going to fail that no matter what they do it's not going to go well they're um, failing some of their classes and they've stopped going to class and they just feel like they want to stay in bed all day um, and not even leave their dorm room again this is an example that is not covid specific because you know you probably should be staying in your dorm room most of the time and if you go out wear a mask um, so in this situation the first thing i would i would do is try to identify the things that are kind of setting this person up for a worse future um, and one of those is going to class like step one go to class even if you don't take notes even if you whatever at least you're there um, so I would set goals with them to attend class you know increasing the amount of times they go to class in the next week um, by one or two you know we don't want to start with like okay go to class all the time that's a big change right to go from what if they're like you know they're going to half their classes to, to suddenly double that I mean that's a tough change to make so I would just increase it by a little bit if they feel like going more great but increase it by a little bit and so when you start making those incremental increases it improves people's mood because they set goals and they accomplish them now this person's life is not suddenly all figured out because they went to class a few extra times right so then there's other things there's homework to look at there's also their social life because if they're enjoying other things it makes it easier to work on the things that are scary and daunting um, because they've got this kind of buffer because of the other pleasant and good experiences they've had and so again like those that's how i would you know help to choose so it would be going to class a little bit more to start and then seeing where that takes them and what you typically see is as people begin to build momentum in their behavior change it tends to take over where they start setting their own goals after a few weeks they start making their own changes you know they start coming into me and saying here's what I want to do next week it's going to be this 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 and this um, and I'll help you know my role suddenly becomes more of a you know personal organizer and making sure well okay yeah but you know you did talk about you know you want to do all this work but you did talk about how important it is to you to spend time with your friends and to play online games with your friends from high school and these kind of things so let's not neglect those too and you know bring those so that becomes my job where at first my job is really like what what is a thing that you feel like you can do to get yourself moving and gain some momentum so that's just the gist of how I um, set goals with a patient and we always do it collaboratively I don't tell them oh you should be doing this and then I might make suggestions but we always choose things together I'm not a taskmaster I'm a collaborator all right two more questions what do therapists slash clinicians do if someone doesn't meet all the DSM criteria but is close to does exhibit some concerning symptoms for example 
What if someone meets the main criteria for GAD, excessive anxiety and worry more days than not, for at least six months and difficulty controlling the worry, but doesn't meet enough of the additional symptoms like restlessness, fatigue, irritability, etc. Also, if someone meets partial criteria for disorder, is it likely the symptoms to progress and eventually meet criteria, and in which case is early intervention common slash beneficial? I agree question. This is a wonderful question because, you know, those the, the constellation of symptoms that describe each disorder in the DSM don't apply to everybody. A lot of people meet criteria for multiple ones. A, mo a lot of people meet criteria for half of one and half of another. Um, there's a lot of gray area here. It makes it look like there's not by having these categories, but there's a lot of gray area. And this is why it's helpful when therapists and clinicians take the kind of orientation that I've been talking about, where it's more about we look at trying to understand why the person's experiencing those symptoms, and then we treat the why. So if someone is experiencing a lot of worry, um, I don't care if they um, experience restlessness, only experience restlessness, or they only experience fatigue and irritability. I don't care if they only get two when they need three. They're still experiencing a lot of worry and it bothers them and it causes suffering for them. So I'm going to work with them just like I would anyone else with GAD. I'd probably involve some mindfulness treatment. Um, I would help with decision making because uh, a lot of people with a lot of worry have a lot of, um, they're not, they have trouble making decisions. So I'd help with skills to make decisions more readily. Uh, a lot of times they have interpersonal difficulties and, and trouble um, with assertiveness. So I work on assertiveness skills. So whatever the person is experiencing that's problematic for them, that's how, what I would treat. So, you know, once I write down a diagnosis in the chart, I don't even look back. It doesn't do anything for me. Um, all that that is is kind of the end game of my assessment like I, I do all this assessment to find out the why what what is why are these problems here what can i do to help this person um, fix these problems and then i add a label to it from the dsm because that makes it easier to understand and categorize but what i pay most attention to is the why and then i treat that so great question. And a lot of therapists work this way. You know, we don't, we don't say, okay, depression, let me pull out my depression manual and read it to the patient and have him do that workbook. I may use a workbook and a manual, but it's, I use it differently for every patient because not every patient looks exact. No patient looks exactly the same as the other one. All their problems come from different places, even if they might look similar on the surface. Um, the other part of this question was if someone meets partial criteria, are they likely to progress and meet full criteria? Uh, it probably depends on the disorder. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think I had mentioned, you know, schizophrenia, that's kind of a, a chronic issue um, that, that tends to, um, without treatment, uh, get worse. But if someone gets good um, pharmacological and uh, behavioral treatment, then it may kind of stay steady. Um, with um, bipolar disorder, if someone experiences manic episodes, the more manic episodes they experience, the more likely they are to experience more manic episodes. A lot of people with bipolar 2, which involves hypomanic instead of manic episodes, do progress to bipolar 1, where they have a manic episode at some point. Um, not everyone, but a lot do. So in those ones, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a probability that they'll um, go on to meet full criteria if they don't at first, but I think for everyone else it really depends. So if I have some symptoms of depression, um, if it's situational, then like for example, um, there's a big, a big change at work where I have to take on a lot of new responsibilities. Um, 
that that's a temporary situation until I figure out how to handle all those responsibilities and I may feel depressed and down and like I'm not doing as good a job as I typically do or that I'm overwhelmed. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to progress to depression to full all criteria um, because more than likely I'll figure it out and be okay. So it, it all depends. It's very situational. I would say that, um, you know, without implementing some sort of skill or problem solving, then a lot of times, yeah, things to, do get worse for folks. But a lot of times they implement those skills on their own because they've learned how to do that or they get some kind of treatment or help with that. Last question. Given what we know about the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy, would it be beneficial to prophylactically treat CBT, teach CBT techniques as part of our general education curriculum in order to better prepare individuals for life stressors down the road? Could this reduce the incidences of mental illness across the lifespan for those involved? Would this make us a more understanding and mentally healthy society? Uh, what are the long-term ranging implications of such an action? Uh, great question. There's not a lot of mental health prevention research, um, so it's hard to say. We do know that people who tend to use uh, a lot of these various mental health skills, some are within CBT, some are within some other um, therapies and other uh, areas, um, tend to do better. If we know how to overcome the inevitable suffering that we will experience throughout our lives, be that because of stressors, be that because of traumatic events, be that because of uh, biological predisposition or, or you know, whatever, um, whatever the many, many, many reasons that we could experience, you know, bad feelings and negative, you know, situations throughout our lives, the more skills we have to overcome that, the better off we'll be. Now, there isn't necessarily a formula for that, which is kind of the challenge, right? We could teach people CBT techniques, but CBT works well for treating people with a mental health issue. Um, but, you know, we don't know if they would actually be preventative. Stands to reason that they would, but we don't actually know that. Um, I'm sure there's some research with specific CBT interventions in specific populations that shows that they do prevent some mental health issues. Um, but would that be beneficial to the population as a whole should we be should it be part of our health classes and things like that i don't know i i hope that that would be true <laughs> but that's kind of a self-interested uh, a self-interested um statement there um but we do know things like stress management and things like that uh are things that we tend to teach across a curriculum um, and those involve a lot of techniques you would see in uh, mental health treatment uh, mental health treatment goes beyond that but those are like relaxation and mindfulness and things like that, you know, are things that are involved in a lot of uh, very commonly taught. Um, and those uh, probably do help for the extent that people use those skills. Those probably do help stave off mental health issues. Um, but to go deeper with that, I'd love to see that happen. Um, but I w I'm not going to claim that we have perfect evidence that that would uh, be a good investment of time, money, and person power, uh, etc. Although I would not complain if someone wanted to go forward with that at all. Well, thank you for listening, everyone, um, who has taken the time to hear me kind of answer these questions. I've got, you know, one more series next week that I'll put out because my class is just about to finish up and I want them to be able to listen to these before they um, uh, finish up with my course. So I hope that uh, people both in my class and outside of it have enjoyed these answers. Uh, if you're in my class, 
feel free to shoot me a message if you have additional questions or submit another anonymous question. If you're outside of my class, just go to dohealthybehealthy.com uh, and you can leave a comment or question for me. Again, I just ask that you don't, you know, ask me to help you with your own mental health issues. I'm happy to, to speak more broadly um, about the mental health questions that you might have, just like I have with um, most of these questions that I've answered here. Take care.